Welcome to Our Sick Society, a podcast series where researchers from King's College London and people with lived experience explore together how social factors contribute to mental health problems. I'm Lavinia. I'm Charlotte. I'm Sally. And I'm Gemma. And we'll all be bringing you episodes. But we'll also have some guest presenters inviting people who tell us their stories to investigate the issues that they're interested in as well as the ones that we think are important. We want to make you think and question society's role in mental health. What are the systems and the structures which mean some people are more likely to be mentally unwell than others? And crucially, what steps should society take from national government policies to local grassroots community organising? How can we cure our sick society? I'm Sally Marlowe. And welcome to the first episode of Our Sick Society. In the episodes to come, you'll be hearing from others, but today it's me. I'm currently at the Centre for Society and Mental Health at King's College London, and it's only in the past few weeks that we've been allowed to move about freely after months of lockdown. It's summer 2020, an extraordinary time when life as we knew it was turned upside down by COVID-19. For those of us working here at the centre, COVID-19 has become a lens through which the impact huge social changes can have on mental health has been magnified, particularly for people in certain communities. Here's Pearl. Um, I was born in London. I live on my own. I have two dogs. I'm a support worker. I support severe autism adults. Explaining what the past few months have been like for her. I received a letter on the 21st of March from the government telling me that I should isolate myself because of the risk of my chest, you know, um, getting an infection. And about a week after in isolation, I started to feel unwell and um, I went down with the virus. So the first six weeks of isolation, it was really, really bad, really bad. Sort of like being on my own and realising that... um, I, I couldn't, had no strength or nothing. It's such a bad experience. But it's not just physical. The isolation has been really hard too. And that's had a huge effect on Pearl's mental health. Yes, yeah, so maybe about week 10, I really started to, I just couldn't sleep. My head was spinning. I was very, very emotional, kept on crying because of the experience. And they're not knowing because you know, will I get it again? Can I go out? When can I go out? Others also spoke to us about their mental health during lockdown. Tia Mariah is a law student at the Open University who has been diagnosed with emotionally unstable personality disorder. My name is Tia Mariah. She too has found it very hard. I mean, I've had suicidal tendencies for for a few years now, but I think that was definitely made worse with the isolation because you just, you have to just deal with your thoughts on your own, sit with those thoughts and you just can't reach out because the services just aren't there because of the lockdown. Being isolated has clearly made Pearl and Tia Mariah's mental health worse. Having an existing mental health problem is only one of several risk factors for people to have more severe mental health problems during COVID. My colleague, Charlotte Geyer-Anderson, has looked at this in detail. 
My name is Charlotte Gay-Anderson and I'm a postdoctoral research fellow. The sad truth is, is that COVID-19 is, is sort of painfully exposing kind of the existing and persisting inequalities in our societies. And the pandemic will probably have the heaviest impact on those who would be considered as is in those disadvantaged and marginalised groups. So to look at the specific impacts of social isolation and social restrictions in, in these groups was what we wanted to um, explore. But we found very little information or data or studies that had, had been carried out to look at the impacts among older age groups, those on low income, those from black and minority ethnic groups. There was no studies whatsoever on kind of refugees, on women in abusive relationships. In the absence of formal research in this area, psychology student Michael Afram has some ideas about why BAME people might be more at risk. My name is Michael Afram. I'm currently a psychology undergrad at Sussex University. I'm going to guess, first is probably the jobs that BAME people are more likely to be doing. You're more exposed to COVID. I guess also the living situations. If there's more people living in the house and more generations, it's more likely that COVID will be able to spread in just a household. If your mum's a nurse and she has to go to work, it's because she's a key worker, she needs to go and save lives. So as a child, you then have to go to school. If your mum catches COVID and comes home, you as the kid who, you're just, you're a sitting duck. You might get COVID, but you might not die from COVID. You're going to pass on to your teacher who is likely to be BAME, or your grandparent who's looking after you, who shouldn't be looking after you, you should be self-isolated. So they pass away. Your mum could pass away because COVID doesn't discriminate, but you could pass away because COVID just didn't discriminate across age or race. But say your parent is sat at home because they've got an established job where they're on furlough and you can sit at home with them, you can self-isolate pretty easily. If you live in an area that's not as densely populated, it's pretty easy to self-isolate. So. I guess there's various reasons. The Centre for Society and Mental Health is looking at issues like this. Here's one of its directors, Professor of Social Epidemiology, Craig Morgan. My name is Craig Morgan. I'm Professor of Social Epidemiology at King's College London and co-director of the ESRC Centre for Society and Mental Health. The centre brings together a a range of academics and uh, non-academic partners to try to understand something about how social change impacts on mental health. And I guess that's particularly relevant in in the current context because we're living through a huge uh, period of social change. And so that's the kind of overarching aim of the centre. How does the way that society changes influence and shape people's mental health over time? And this approach was judged sufficiently important that it's been funded by the Economic and Social Research Council as its Director of Research, Alison Park, explains. My name is Alison Park and I'm Director of Research at the ESRC, the Economic and Social Research Council. So I think the advantage of the centre is that it brings together people with different disciplinary backgrounds um, because that's clearly something that's going to be really important to do. And it brings them together in a space where they can collaborate and work over a period of time. And so I think there is something about a centre allowing different individuals working on different projects to coalesce and collaborate and make um, the grand sum of the centre's activity greater than the sum of their parts. So definitely part of being a centre is that bringing together 
the um, cross-fertilization, the allowing different disciplines the time to get to know one another's languages. Because as someone who's worked on interdisciplinary projects in the past, that's a huge barrier, actually, is that we, we often use very different terms to be talking about the same things. And so there is a familiarization process with that. Different disciplines can approach particular research questions in very different ways. So it takes time to do that. So I think, to me, in a way, it's, it's strange to even imagine that you could look at mental health without building in the social. But as Alison points out, we use terms differently. What do we mean by the word social? For Tia Mariah, that includes her mental health and her ethnicity. I mean, I've got a best friend who is white, blonde hair, and she went out a lot during lockdown. She didn't really care. She was just like, oh, I just need fresh air. I need to get out. I want to meet up with my friends. And um, she didn't have that worry about the police or anything. She just said, well, why, why are the police? The police aren't going to stop me. They're not going to care. And I guess for me, especially being mentally ill as well and being a, a mixed race female that with those two combined the fear was and probably is that well yeah the police are going to think who is this person why is she out why is she on the street you know and that's an excuse maybe for them to stop me and find me. Stephanie Hatch is a professor of sociology and epidemiology at King's College London. I'm Stephanie Hatch I'm a professor of sociology and epidemiology. So the thing that the first thing that comes to mind, and it was, you know, based on some of the work that came out of our um, Southeast London community health study is around discrimination. And uh, again, so you're talking about some, uh, you know, a characteristic of um, people's lives, something that is uh, experienced right over the life course, often in association with, with larger sort of structural issues such as racism that hadn't really been picked up to the extent that showed its importance. Um, So we started looking at this in in a lot of depth uh, in previous community studies and really thought that it needed a a lot more focus and brought that to the center. So that was was a really exciting moment to be able to think about both, you know, the theoretical aspects of it, the methodological, but also the practical side. And then also the ability, you know, finally working with a group of people who really wanted to work with communities. COVID didn't create the inequalities. That's, that's the interesting thing. It just exposed them. And did it surprise me? Um, not really, because the inequalities were always there. And depending on what side of the line you were on, you knew they were there. As a black man, I'm twice as likely to die from COVID as a white man. Social also includes your work, where you live, who you mix with. And for some of us, these are more stable than others. Here's Pearl again. And I just hope that work will accommodate what I actually need to get the job done. And and if they don't, I'm going to have to leave. And it's only just recently that I've realised that you know, put me first for once, you know? Start looking after yourself, pal. So 
Whatever social means, the evidence shows us that different social worlds have different impacts on our health and our mental health. For Craig Morgan, this was a driving factor for working in mental health research. My interest in mental health started when I was at university and uh, my my mum had a job as a catering assistant on a psychiatric unit and there were openings to, to get onto their bank scheme for assistant nurses. And so I spent some time during the holidays uh, working as an assistant nurse in a psychiatric unit. And I come from a, a, a town called Barnsley in Yorkshire. And um, what struck me when working on that unit is that there were a lot of men um, who had lost their jobs during the miners' strike, the great miners' strike in the 1980s, and who were struggling with that loss of role, um, that loss of uh, income and security and, and so on, um, and in really quite profound ways. Fast forward a few decades, and the communities might be different, but the issues haven't changed. Michael's view on why we are still where we are is clear. It's not just ethnicity or whether you have a job. It's also being young. As a generation, and we have to accept that because we're not in charge. People can't, we can't vote enough to make the change. And the Conservatives know there's quite a lot of the older generation that's vote. So if I cater to them, this is how I'm going to stay in power. Young people are not the issue because you have no power in society. The cutoff age for us voting is at a point where it's like, okay, you don't get to vote, so you don't matter to me. But in two years, when you, when you start mattering to me, eh, you're, there's not enough of you that vote for me to really cater to you. So why would I do that? Why do you give us that? Why, they don't give young people anything in politics because we're just not a big enough demographic to matter to them. The people with lived experience I spoke to in making this podcast all wanted to see change. As human beings, we all have, a, I guess, a, a moral duty to each other, to look out for each other and to check in on each other and, you know, to be there for each other. During this lockdown, I have had people that have called me. I have had friends that have tried to call me and see how I am, and I've tried to do the same to my friends and my family members. But I think sometimes it just doesn't go far enough. And I think, you know, we could be checking up on each other more. Even after lockdown completely ends, I think a lot of lessons can be learned from this and that we need to support each other and be there for each other and check in on each other. Support groups, whether it's via like Zoom or another video call app or over the phone, support groups for, for different people. My thing is, I don't feel like it's just coming out in research now. I feel like this is common knowledge. I'm not a genius. I don't get paid all this money by the government to tell you this, but I could work it out. And the government do, oh, we've worked it out just now, or there's, this is just another study. This has come out. There's more findings, more findings. But what are you doing with the findings? How are you, stop, like, how are you stopping being people from dying? These are clear calls to action. That's important for the centre too. What we want to do is we want to put consideration of the social uh, drivers of mental health front and centre of uh, the way that we approach, talk about mental health, the way we think about it and how we uh, understand it and, and intervene at multiple levels. So we want to contribute to a shift in, in that direction because we think that will have the biggest impact. We want to move from understanding the social origins of mental distress to what we can do to intervene. 
and um, what we can do to intervene at different levels and then to uh, implement those changes and evaluate them and tweak them so they have uh, maximum benefits. For example, when we are thinking about the, the work that we're doing and how we can work with communities, we don't just focus on the research itself. We focus on using the arts, using music, spoken word, photography, whatever we can do to start a conversation and sustain that conversation with a community and to get their perspectives on things that don't involve words sometimes. We just, there's so much creativity. So, so two of the key partners that we're working with are Black Thrive and Thrive London. And one of the things that excited me about them was their grassroots, in both cases, their sort of grassroots approaches. And again, this more focus on social justice and, and sort of working with volunteer and community organizations more widely. So allowing there to be resources going into communities um, and then, you know, sort of linking people up and um, creating, you know, a sort of swell of, of energy and, and movement, you know, from the bottom up. And so we've been working with them to also think about how we can do better as researchers to link up with some of the talent and insight and those interested in being part of the knowledge production. Um, so utilizing some of the tools that we have and, and also looking to communities for them to teach us. Um, and so that's, you know, that's where we're starting and we certainly, you know, expanding. We work with multiple networks across the UK and internationally. I think what, what unifies all of the partners uh, is this, that same ethos that I've been describing. And that's, it just feels really exciting to me because I, I feel like we're really onto something. And, it, you know, luckily we, we have the centre and the funding and the time and space the stakes are high for people like Pearl and Tia Mariah. You know, because everyone's really surprised that, um, that I have mental health. They're very surprised I take medication because I'm smiley and bouncy. And, and I don't tell a lot of people because of the stigma that goes with having mental health. You know, I'm not ashamed of it now because after that experience, I said to my sister, I'm not holding back on these emotions. If I'm not well, I'm letting everyone know, you know, I'm letting, telling the whole world, you know, that I'm not well. So I think it took a lot for me to even say that to my sister, but the emotions were just so strong. I, I had to let it out. I had to let someone know that internal pain that I was feeling because I was so scared. I was so, so scared, not knowing if I get better, would anyone knock on the door? I would just like to say, I mean, because I, I still feel like we are in some form of lockdown now, even though it's being eased. But I would, I guess, like to say that I know that obviously coronavirus is, is serious and this pandemic has been very serious and I accept that. But just because a virus breaks out or a pandemic starts mental health doesn't stop you know mental health issues don't go away and I think that if anything like this is to happen in the future I really hope it doesn't but if something similar like this happens in the future I think I would really like different services professionals um, ministers whoever to be aware of that that you know support is still needed you know and that needs to be more provisions put in place if this if something like this was to happen again for people you can't just leave 
people out in the lurch, you know, especially people who are diagnosed with severe mental disorders or mental disabilities. You can't just leave them like that because, you know, a lot of people just won't cope and then there'd be a surge of suicides and surging suicides and it's just, just be chaotic. You've been listening to Our Sick Society. The presenter was Sally Marlowe. Production support was provided by Katie Lois and the producer was Buddy Peace. Our Sick Society was funded by King's College London's ESRC Impact Acceleration Account. <laughs>